We're very excited to tell you about a new sponsor here at Beyond the Pond, Section 119. Section 119 is a higher-end apparel company that started making suits in New York City. Bob and Greg met in 1.0 in Chicago in 96, hit a bunch of Alpine Deer Creek shows before they teamed up with a 3.0 noob, Jake, who they met on the lot and handles all their customer service, as well as Shiv, who is one of their designers. Total shows across the team is over 400, and they make really fantastic clothes that have been worn on stage by John Fishman. You might remember the Willin board shorts from the Mexico run here in 2020, as well as Mickey Hart wears their socks, and they have a custom jacket that's waiting for Bobby after COVID passes. With the current health pandemic that we are facing, it's running coronavirus, Section 119 has transitioned and have made their immediate attention on making masks. This allows them the opportunity to both help you as fans showcase your love for the music that you do love, while also instilling a mindset of a virtual hug, if you will. Hugs are huge, high fives are huge within our fan base, but obviously those are a huge part of the spread of the coronavirus. So instead, we've got masks showcase your Grateful Dead and your fish love and allow you to showcase to others your love within the overall community. We'd encourage all of our listeners to check out section119.com. Please know that during this time, every order that's processed, they are donating a mask to a community in need. They're working their way down a list of essential workers, homeless shelters, and rehabilitation centers, so you know that your purchase is going to good use. Beyond the Pond listeners have a special offer. If you go to section119.com, that's section one. 19.com enter the code btp upon checkout you'll get 20 percent off your first purchase once again that's section 119.com section 119.com enter the code btp upon checkout you'll get 20 percent off your first purchase and you know that that purchase is going to some good Before we go beyond the pond, we wanted to tell you about another fantastic podcast in Osiris Media, Amigos with Mike Finoya. Mike is a stand-up comedian and all-around great guy. He runs a fantastic podcast called Amigos, where he interviews people from the fish world, from the larger entertainment world, as well as does deep dives, tour recaps, lots of really great stuff. The dude loves fish. Loves the Grateful Dead, loves the whole jam band scene, is a huge part of all of this, and uh, does a really great job bringing you along for a really cool insider's view into what it's like both working in the entertainment industry as well as being a huge fan of Fish and the Dead. Yeah, Mike is a very funny guy. He's a big music fan. He's done things on his podcast, like he's done a two-part interview with... um, Utila Burbridge, of course, the bass player, once of the Almonds, now of Dead & Co. I think he did a very funny interview with Ryan Stasek from, from Umphreys McGee, of course. He's interviewed Carl Denson. He's just, uh, he's a good guy to be around. A few times I've had a chance to hang out with him. We've definitely had a good time. And I think you'll uh, enjoy his podcast, Amigos, on Osiris Media. Absolutely. 
One thing you guys need to check out if you haven't listened yet is Mike's sub-series, Still Chasing. Mike Fenoya and Mike Shields, another fantastic member of Osiris Media, sit down and chronicle Mike's uh, love affair with Fish, his introduction to the band, how they've impacted his life, great shows he's seen, what it's meant to him as a listener and as a music fan overall. That came out here in early 2020. I think there were about five or six episodes that dropped all at once. Really great stuff uh, from Mike Fenoya. So check out Amigos as well as Still Chasing. Osiris Media. And now, let's get to the pod. David Goldstein. I am Brian Brinkman. We are joined by a special guest this evening. Hey, thanks for having me on. <laughs> What's your name, sir? Uh, sorry, my name is uh, Robert Kerr. You can call me Bob. Um. Bob Kerr. <laughs> Bob yes. Kerr, welcome to the podcast. How you doing, man? Thank you. I'm doing great. And we are all convened tonight for episode 98 of the Beyond the Pond podcast. Getting close to 100. This is the podcast which, generally speaking, Brian, myself, and tonight Bob utilize the music of Fish as a means of getting the listener to listen to other bands. These are usually not jam bands because we love Fish. We are Fish fans, especially in quarantine when we need the fishy comfort food. However, sometimes Fish fans get a bit myopic only listen to their favorite bands, fail to see the forest for the trees, and we are trying to do something about that by introducing you to music, both new and old, that you will enjoy if you like this band. Absolutely. And we're very excited this evening because we're talking about a jam that just celebrated its 20th birthday. And we are joined here by a very special guest who we've been interacting with and talking with for the last couple of years on Twitter and are very excited to dive deep into this jam, as well as some really relevant themes uh, associated with it. We are talking this evening in this episode about the ghost from Radio City Music Hall in New York City, New York, on May 22nd, 2000. Mm. First, like, major... 2000 jam not at big cypress very very excited about this and if you guys know uh i'm guessing those of you who are returning know kind of how we run through it we do a big deep dive into the world of fish uh around the time of the jam kind of splinter off to some big thematic pieces with regards to the jam and then we dive into some other bands that we think you guys should check out if you like this jam while also offering up some new music that we recommend so, some of the themes that we're going to explore in this episode include From Krautrock to Fish 2000, Meet Me in the Bathroom, and A Brief History of Fish in New York City in 1.0. 
So on that note, let's get to the fish. So, the ghost from Radio City Music Hall on May 22nd, 2000, New York, New York. Uh, I want to say that this is our first New York City jam not played at MSG. I'd have to double check that with our statistician, but uh, I believe that that's true. Why are we talking about this jam? Well, it's a very famous jam. It's a very much of a much beloved jam within the community. Ultimately, kind of the biggest things that hit me about this jam is that if any jam sounds like the bridge from Cyprus to Japan 2000, it is this ghost. You take that melodic brilliance, the minimalism, and time, capital T, time, and you have this formula for one of the most contemplative, emotive, and deeply exploratory jams that the band has ever played. It's almost entirely mic-led, Trey hangs in the background here, allowing the jam to take shape over 15-ish minutes before he offers any significant leads. Yeah, there's even a point right around the 15-minute mark where uh, Mike tries to go back to the ghost bass line and tries to offer Trey a ripcord, but Trey's like, no, just pass it back to him. <laughs> um, and then they just keep going. It's mm-hmm. awesome. Yeah, it's uh, I love it because like, yeah, Mike thinks that we're winding down. And then Trey comes in and uh, he kind of moves to this very chordal and rhythmic jamming that showcases the overall connectivity and simple communication that defines so much of the best of Fish's output from Remain in Light through October 7th, 2000. It's a very, very cool moment. Yeah, I've been listening to this jam on and off for the past 20 years and I can never quite memorize it. Maybe because it's a <laughs> half an hour, maybe because it's got a lot of open space but each time i kind of hear something i haven't noticed before or something i thought was from another jam it's like oh no it's actually from this ghost um i kind of wish there was a crisper tape available like all i've really heard are audience tapes and they aren't the greatest i mean i don't know what kind of gear people were able to sneak in the radio city music hall i also don't think there's any video of this show which would be why perhaps yeah uh, i'm 
surprised they never released this on any of the uh, any of the soundboard releases they've ever done. Um, but I will say, I don't know if the credit goes to the sound guy or just the the acoustics of the room, which are really top top notch. But the sound mix I think is great. It's got a really kind of robust bottom to it, um, which I don't know if if that is something that just came through after the fact or if it was something the band was hearing in their monitors and um, really inspired them to take take this jam and this that set in the direction they did. But um, I think one thing that's cool about um, the show is that Radio City Music Hall, the venue, was um, you know designed just before uh, ampli- amplification was really rolled out. So it was designed for, for people to sing without microphones, and it was built with rock, Rockefeller money. Right. So it's just a room that has great acoustics. There's a really good book about the making of Rockefeller Center. I think it's called Great Expectation. I forget. It'll come to me. I have to Google it. Because I, I read it, and I loved it, and I talked all about the building of Radio City Music Hall and Rockefeller Center and all the money that went into it. And it's a fascinating read. It'll come to me. That, yeah, that, I'd love to read that. And I don't know if they had any idea that 75 years later, there would be like hippies passing balloons around outside and <laughs> walking in their carpeted, <laughs> lush uh, <laughs> lobby and foyer. <laughs> but... <laughs> Yeah, and I mean, I think your your point about the sound is, and it's something I would love to hear this on a. Uh, um, I, I feel like this was released on some from the archives. I can't recall. I've only I've always listened to it on the Relissa mix, but there's there's no like true peak to this jam in the traditional sense, which is a really interesting aspect of it. Um, like you were saying, Bob, it it it's like they were really exploring the like ability to play quiet in this room. It's just like slow build kind of proves that the journey is the destination. And like many jams from the era, like space is the key here. You're not looking for a peak. You're really riding for this experience. It's subtle. It's nuanced. And this is really what defines the best jams, I would say, from December 99, especially through July 2000. Whenever I think about this ghost, the description I keep coming up in my mind is uh, it sounds classy especially around like the 17 yeah. minute mark where Trey is just kind of playing tasteful wah-wah chords and Paige is doing these really elegant piano riffs at like a slower tempo than the rest of the jam. I think thinking about the Monopoly guy, like he's sauntering <laughs> up to you at like an exclusive club. He's got like brown liquor in one hand. He's like, my good man, have a sip. <laughs> just like, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Just like yeah, uh, like a nice wood interior type of type yes. of room, like back room, like smoke filled type yeah. of thing. Yeah, uh. cigars. And <laughs> he's giving you a Manhattan, and you're talking about yeah. Dan Rockefellers and Standard Oil. Uh, <laughs> this you is know a- that there's something wrong. Like there's a lot of money that shouldn't be in this room, but like you also feel really good type yes. of thing. Right. <laughs> this is an old money ghost. <laughs> this is an old money ghost. Yes. <laughs> um. So in, in terms of like larger comparisons, I think one thing that, you know, as we're discussing this, there's not really like a direct comparison to this Radio City Ghost like there are with a lot of other jams talked about. It's very unique, it's singular. It's, you know, I found that I went through some of the ghosts that have been played over the years and I found a couple that really matched the spaciousness, the kind of mid-tempo, full-band conversational approach to this Radio City Ghost. So a couple, if you guys like this and you want to hear a ghost in a very similar fashion, 
Um, and I would note a big shout out to one of our previous guests, one of our good friends at Lawn Memo. Uh, he has a website where he tracked and listened to every single ghost and like categorized them and wrote about them. It's really good stuff. But this is just like a snippet of ghosts. Um, 81698, the Lemon Wheel Ghost. Um, there's a really poorly videotaped uh, video of this set for on YouTube that I absolutely love. It's like right before the sun goes down, you can tell it's like that cool, crisp northern Maine, mid-August time of year. Like everyone's wearing sweaters and sweatshirts. It's like steam and stuff coming off the stage. And this ghost, man, is just so patient, so melodic. It's beautiful. Um, 912.99 from Portland, uh, Portland, Oregon. Um, long. That's another 30-minute ghost. Um, and October 9th, 99 from Albany, which goes into a My Left Toe-esque jam uh, and is really, really beautiful. Um, what else do we have here on our list, guys, to finish off? we got uh, July 27th, 2003 from Raleigh. Ghost yes. 2.0 is very hard. July 20th, 2014 from Chicago, Northerly Island. That one's um, not as long as some of the other ones on this list, but kind of does a lot with the shorter runtime. Yeah, it might be my favorite jam of summer 2014. Yeah. And then most recently, um, August 31st, 2019 from Dix. That's in the first set, right? First set, Ghost. Um, right. That was a good one. That's so good. You could see me. I was like, I couldn't even dance properly to that ghost. It was so demented. I was just like kind of hunched over and like bobbing and weaving. Um <laughs> It was like the very, it was the magic of dicks in that ghost. Um, in terms of larger jams from the era that we would recommend you guys checking out as well, that kind of have ties to this ghost. Uh, there's a few, I mean, this era, like I was saying, subtlety, nuance playing is really what defined December 99 to July 2000. And uh, Bob, you want to kick off our list here of some of our comparable jams of the era? Sure. Well, what you've got here uh, is a twelve three ninety nine. I'm I don't know where it was. I'm sorry. Uh, limb by limb, twelve eight ninety nine. Piper. Um, that was from a two night um, uh, run in Portland, Maine. That I actually attended. Yes. Uh, there was a great Piper, a great Haley's, a great yes. Sand, uh, a great. You enjoy myself. Um, twelve eleven ninety nine. December ninety nine. You're seeing a trend here. It was a great month. <laughs> uh, the 2001 from that show. 12, 12, 99 drowned. 12, Hartford. Yeah. Hartford drowned. Yeah. 12, 16, 99 tweezer. And, uh, the drown from new year's Eve of that year. Um, down in Florida. Yes. We've got one that I was at May 23rd, 2000 from Roseland ballroom. The MR. It's a 14 minute. Very so interesting. Good. Only, maybe the only good thing yes. is that show. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, June 9th, 2000, the Tweezer. And then we're getting into, uh, these are some Japanese shows we have. And, uh, June 10th, 2000, the Piper. And then, of course, the most legendary, Fukuoka, June 14th, 2000, Twist, to the Jam, to walk away into jam into 2001. And then rounding things out, we finish up Japan with 
two 30-minute jams, uh, July 15, 2000, Down With Disease, July 16, 2000, Runaway Jim, and then stateside, the July 22, 2000, Sand, from uh, uh, the tour opener, a uh, show that featured a lot of great bluegrass, uh, really fantastic show, has a really unique sand, and the July 6, 2000, Piper, from, I believe, Molson Arena in Toronto, Ontario. Um, kind of gives you just like an overview of this spacious millennial type sound that fish was playing in uh, at this time that is really heavily featured when we get to this ghost but so in terms of kind of broadening this uh the the view here away from this ghost talking about this overall show and this overall run um, kicking things off initially with the show here I'm going to say something I don't typically say in uh, episodes like this, but I think it's just a fair warning, dear listener. I wouldn't recommend anyone listen to this show in its entirety. Um, the ghost is really the star here, and there's some other really good moments, but um, there's a lot of unremarkable moments within the first set that's kind of borders on boring. You've got a really good split up in a melt, back-to-back riff tunes, those are great, and then a pretty blissful gin to highlight the end of the first set. Just kind of, the first set here reaffirms, at least this was something really true in like 1.0, and I would say even early 3.0. Fish has a hard time sometimes rising to the challenge of uh, the big show, but um, Bob, I believe, were you at this show? Yes, I was at, I went to this run. Uh, I was pretty fortunate to go to these to both of these shows i had just recently moved to new york city like four months ago and just scored these tickets and uh so yeah uh i would say the split up in a melt um is there's a kind of cool thing going on you when you listen to it back you'll hear people cheer at what seem just like random times um <laughs> that's because during the during that song they killed the stage lights entirely and Kuroda just like monkeyed around with the house lights in Radio City. Oh, wow. So if you've ever been there or seen photos of Radio City, it's this art deco, almost kind of like clamshell design to it. Um, yeah. so if you can you've got someone like Kuroda manning the house lights, he kind of just creates these like just ripples of light that just kind of made the whole room glow and the stage was dark. Mm. Um, mm. So that's why the crowd was kind of just like s- screaming at just, just what sounds like randomness listening to it in 2020. <laughs> Interesting. That's wow. That's such incredible imagery to think about. I love when that, when stuff like that happens and you're like, this won't translate to a tape, but it was so cool. Right? <laughs> yeah. 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 Now it sounds like maybe like three people tried running to the stage. <laughs> um, in terms of the second set, uh, you've got some cool moments, I would say. The bouncing opener into David Bowie is very, very cool, especially as they start the Bowie opener, uh, the Bowie drum riff. And the bouncing riff kind of lingers into the Bowie intro. And it's really as well as moments for people like myself who dream of a type 2 bouncing. This is kind of like a small taste of what we could get here. And it follows with sand and mango that are pretty good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I love the sand from this show. Um, it's I think it's almost like a companion piece to the ghost that we're about to talk about. Uh, this kind of, like, this, just the sands from 1999 and 2000 are so good. Um, as they kind of, like... Like, I think Trey kind of wrote the song to be sort of the tab kind of review style where you lay down a groove, and then there's the organ solo, and then there's the yeah. trombone solo, and then there's the guitar solo, and then we close the song. 
And Fish was trying to figure out how to do that within the context of what they do. So this one's just, it's just one of those just airy kind of lights down low approach um, where Fishman's just heavy in the, in the mix and he's just wailing on the snare, um, just this loud dry sound that to me, it's kind of a strange comparison, but it almost sounds like a tribe called Quest Beat. Mm. Like there are moments where you could just picture kind of like Fife Dog coming in um, and just <laughs> riding like the snare the way that Q-Tip used to in his production. Um, so that's great. And the Mango song um, also uh, that followed is wonderful. Uh, I did a tiny bit of research before I came on and all of the longest Mango songs took place from 724.99 in Alpine Valley through 927 of this year, which I don't know where it was. Um, but for some reason, they were just feeling the Mango song. Um, and uh, it's just underrated Type 1 vehicle with the great outro riff. Um, and this whole era was kind of bookended by those two type two um, versions of it. Um, the last one, um, or one on nine seventeen, I should say, uh, really kind of devolves into this um, really ambient textured um, jam that that we could have mentioned just a few minutes ago if we wanted to. Um, so it was just a, a funny thing. They could, and uh, I guess they just like had to go on hiatus because he had nowhere else to take Magoson <laughs> after that. <laughs> of course, we get Ghost, which is star of the show, star of the run, one of the standout jams of 2000, which is overall a very, very good jamming year. And um, rock and roll closes set one because, uh, you know, we're in New York after all. Why the hell not? Yeah. And New York Radio for Radio City, they, pro- they think of that stuff, I'm sure. Yes. Yes. They're... Trey is as earnest of a nerd as it gets with that sort of stuff. It's seriously. (laughs) Um, So in terms of the larger run, just talking about kind of, you know, where fish was at in May of 2000, it's really unique. I would say like the only comparisons are like new year's runs and Mexico runs, but there's kind of more of a focus on the music business here rather than like an aesthetically focused full tour or full run. Um, The week leading up to the radio city and Roseland shows are all promos and TV appearances, radio show interviews that all work to promote Farmhouse harder than any Fish album ever has or really has since. Um, From there, they played three nights, none of which are like standout amazing shows, but each have their own highlights. And it's really odd to me that uh, they would take a hiatus just six months later because outside of maybe the Joy release, I feel like the band hasn't promoted an album with this much fervor at any point in their career. Yeah, it was kind of odd. I've seen to recall at the time that the whole publicity blitz seemed really deliberate and kind of weird. Like, they were almost trying to convince themselves that they weren't completely spent after Cyprus, and they were trying to figure out if they still enjoyed being fish. Either that or, like, Electra people had heard about Cyprus, and Electra wanted to, like, capitalize and strike while the iron is hot. I don't know. I mean, in farmhouses, um... You know, Farmhouse is basically, it was uh, kind of a very well-produced, from Bryce Goggin, well-produced Oz and Sods collection of fish songs that have been kicking around for about three years. Uh, some tab songs that probably sounded better as tab songs. But it captures a live sound, and it doesn't have any songs that already hadn't been kind of beaten to death. So it's kind of like Sigma Oasis 1.0. I think Sigma <laughs> Oasis... Is a better record, but certainly uh, it's a much better record <laughs> in terms of road-tested material. A lot of that in Farmhouse. 
I will chime in and say that the promotional blitz kind of worked. Heavy Things yeah. is the only song of theirs that really made a pop chart in any way. Um, and it's still like not not amongst like the three of us, but to a lot of people, like Heavy Things is still like one of the only fish songs they know, weirdly enough. Yes. Mm. Um, the album had the highest first ever, uh, sorry, the highest ever first week sales. Um, it, it did come out in the CD era when like NSYNC and Britney Spears were just selling ungodly record uh, right right before napster right (laughs) yeah right before napster um so farmhouse and heavy things were probably the most downloaded songs on napster by fish after gin and juice i would say um and they're still (laughs) the most uh spotify tracks (laughs) yeah you know it's interesting i when i got into fish in the summer of 2001 i was like i became curious about fish and like sometime around 2000 but it was really like i did my first big deep dive in 2001 and i I remember there was like a backlash to farmhouse like i had it in my car Mm. and i definitely like got like slightly ribbed for having it um Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. it was kind of looked at at least in like circles i ran as like kind of the lame fish album i don't Mm -hmm. know if that's just like it's the most recent fish album. And so it gets that, you know, but people seem to love Sigma Oasis. I think that happens like the whole way. I think that like I got into fish in 1994 and like hoist was the one, like I was, you know, it was like, Oh, hoist fans, you know, as if like, I saw the video for down with disease on and was like, Oh, I've got a new favorite band now. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, plus farmhouse, it had a lot of songs kind of like, um, the batch of 1997 songs that didn't make it on the story of the ghost ended up on farmhouse yeah like dirt piper right, right, right. uh twist mm-hmm. it's an interesting it's an interesting fish album in that like i feel like it's closest uh compatriots are hoist joy and probably fuego and big boat in that like there's a really deliberate push to be recognized by a larger audience it's not necessarily made for fish's fan base it's more like here's our new songs we're going to produce them in a really bright way and we're going to see if it catches on outside of the community and as a result like i i I almost feel like those four albums are just like companions to the sound of the band at that time but like story of the ghost rift even round room for me um Sigma Oasis for sure like those feel like a part of an era of fish that like were made for their fans that's at least how I hear it um, I like the production on uh, on Farmhouse a lot though I think Dirt especially like it's it sounds alive like it sounds better than like the Bob Ezrin mm. Big Boat Fuego production yes yes I would agree with that the, the, the slower sounds the slower songs tend to sound better on this album than like I, I actually like the production of Piper on this. Um, Bug is really nice, and a couple of these, some of these are some of their best written songs too. They're not like our favorite songs, but like Bug and Dirt are two of really the best songs Trey's ever written from a pure songwriting standpoint. Yeah, they can stand on their own outside of like any live performance or any jamming. Um, so in terms of this run, just to give you a quick overview, because like I went through and listened to this whole week, it's. I'd never listened to any of this stuff. And it's got some really fascinating moments. Um, it kicks off on May 15th at WXPN's World Cafe in Philadelphia. I spent an entire weekend with WXPN back in August when they played all of Woodstock, which was a fantastic and fascinating experience. But they play a two-set show here. 
mainly a repeated set list and then interviews in set two. And it's really notable because Trey is super defensive. He's asked about his solo tour and if he's like kind of breaking up with the band or if the band was upset about him and what it's like for him to be the lead songwriter and take that away from the other guys and what he thinks about not having a radio hit. And like the whole time he's kind of like, come on, man, I just played in front of a hundred thousand people for the millennium. Like get the fuck off me. <laughs> I, I love it though. I, 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 I kind of love hyper defensive Trey. It's the yeah. year of uh, the bittersweet motel movie. He was just not having any negative feedback. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, you then go to uh, the next night in New York city, May 16th, late night with David Letterman. They play heavy things. Following which, and it's on the Relisten app, uh, you can hear Dave walk up to the band as he would do and yells to Fishman, it's his band! This is his song! <laughs> yeah. This one's actually on YouTube. I, I, oh, yeah. I checked it out today. Um, they um, joined Paul Schaefer and the world's most dangerous band for, or whatever they're called, for the bumper music coming out of the commercial. And uh, Dave was like, you guys passed the audition. Yeah. <laughs> it was pretty good. The other thing I noticed, too, is that Fishman is not wearing his dress. He's wearing pants and, I believe, a residence T-shirt. Uh, he was already teasing Halloween 2018. <laughs> <laughs> um, they then fly across the country. They play the Key Club, 519-2000, the Mark and Brian program in L.A. Uh, I think this is a legitimately good promo set. You've got a really good the Jabu to open the show. It's awesome. The twist actually hits on like pre-Fukuoka themes. And then the segment of Tube into Piper, which then segues into Llama, is really interesting. It's contained, but it's really interesting. And you get the first Magia since uh, 8198. Yeah, I was checking this out before uh, uh, in preparation for this. And uh, kind of feels like what the Farmhouse album should have been. It almost like if they had just released this, maybe minus Llama, it would have felt a bit like the Sigma Oasis album with the. Uh, live band feel it's really well yeah. sequenced and well jammed and Paige and fish are higher up in the mix than they usually are which is a kind of an ongoing criticism i have with their studio albums um it was, it's a pretty good set yeah yeah it's kind of like your kind of like best of uh of that era kind of laid to tape it's really nice sure. um they then come back east and we talked about 522 at radio city but the two shows that are on either side of these 521 so uh, the first Radio City show, this is the first official show since Big Cypress, first New York City show since December 31st, 1998. You get this huge first tube opener with Trey, just like Windmill, like Pete Townsend, um, and a really, really excellent Down with Disease and a pretty standard fair show. The Down with Disease goes 20 minutes, and I highly recommend listening to it. Yeah, this is... I, I, I've twice caught a tour opener after an album release um, in 1996 I did with Billy Breeze and then this this show after um, Farmhouse and uh, if you've got a limited budget I wouldn't recommend like the tour or opener after an album release <laughs> if you can only go to one fish show that year this is what I would say about uh, the majority of the summer 2014 oh sure and they just good example we're promoting the album Fuego the whole time but yeah, don't get me wrong. If there was a tour opener behind Sigma Oasis tonight, I, I wish I would have a chance to go to it. 100%. 100%. Yeah. Um, the last show of this run uh, is 523-2000 from Roseland. It's a very high-demand ticket. show was announced only one week beforehand. It was taped for VH1's Hard Rock Live. Uh, this was 
uh, featured non-transferable wristbands, uh, which had to be claimed at the box office the morning before the show, a limit of one per person, and I just cringe at the thought of opportunistic works trying to transfer these. You know it was happening, and I just it just stresses me out to think about it. Yeah, actually, um, I got online at this show at 4 o'clock in the morning, and I got to the front of the line, I think, around 11 o'clock. So I got my wristband, and I went to the Carnegie Deli, which is no longer open, got a big pastrami on rye, and um, the show wasn't very good. Uh, Yamar, in the first set, was interesting. Starts in, like, the wrong key of G. Then, like, Trey requests play. Page plays a solo in A, and they get to the right key. And it's kind of, like, interesting ambient jam. But uh, aside from that, I mean, it was very cool to walk in the middle, right now, in the middle of the open ACDC bag at this tiny venue. I think I'd only seen Primus there uh, previously. I mean, this show was actually better than the Oysterhead show I saw 17 months later at Roseland. And, um, this was actually the um, first complete live fish set I ever saw, uh, like, on videotape. Uh, a friend of mine said, I've got a set of fish. And he came over to my house with, like, a VHS that he had taped of the uh, VH1 Live and put it in my video, uh, VCR. And we sat down and watched it. I remember they played Yem. And I remember uh, Mike's hair at that point, like, still looked like a sheepdog. And, like, when he jumped, it, like, looked like the ears of a sheepdog. And I was just, like, mesmerized by it. Um, yeah, this run is interesting. I think it's um, it's one of the more unique weeks in fish, and especially, like, this combined with what they would then do basically 15 days later in Japan is really kind of wild. But, um before we jump into the jam, I know we're going a little long here. Um, there's a lot of kind of cool stuff, like cool little tidbits about this jam that we wanted to go into. We wanted to talk about uh, this brief history of fish in New York City in 1.0. We tend to think about fish here in 2020 as a New York City band. You know, they played the Baker's Dozen. Basically, every New Year's run seems to be at MSG. But aside from... A few MSG shows scattered throughout 94, 95, like the last half of the decade, their shows in New York City are kind of interesting at these like small little venues. And we want to kind of give a brief overview of this. So um, kicking things off, and before we do that, there is one thematic like unity to like eight of these shows that I want you listeners to pick up on. <laughs> um, listen for it. Uh, but kicking things off, the first New York City show for Fish was March 31st, 1988 at Kenny's Castaways. Uh, you got a Forbin's Mockingbird, pretty standard, but great for that era. Um, a year later, March 4th, 1989, this is their first show at the wet Wetlands. You got Fish, Trombone, plus I Dream of Genie Teases and Lizards, which is pretty sweet. I've been to Wetlands. I got there Three times, I think, in the late 90s. Definitely saw the New Deal. Uh, some other <laughs> jam bands I can't recall for the life of me. Very cute, hippie funhouse. Like, downstairs, with, like, a DJ and, like, some really ratty chairs and, you know, like, neon kind of, like, black light on the walls. I mean, nothing exists like it anymore. <laughs> Just a really tiny, cramped room with bad sight lines. But it, it was a good vibe. I, I it was went cool. there 
once I saw Fishbone there. Fishbone was the other fish-related band I used to see a lot. Um, caught them there. I may have caught a DJ set. I feel like I caught a hip-hop DJ set in the in this uh, lower level, but that was 20 years ago. I don't remember. Um, so jumping ahead like six months, another show at the Wetlands, October 26, 1989. This has an awesome packed set list. Uh, set two is basically Fluffhead deconstructed. Like all the sections of Fluffhead are out of order. Uh, Divided Sky is played in set one, but then No Dogs Allowed is played in set two. I mean, if you're looking for a like predecessor to how Umphreys McGee and the Disco Biscuits would uh, <laughs> write their set list, like here it is. Deconstructed Fluffhead. It's like a gourmet Fluffhead. You, you pay extra. <laughs> I thought the taper may have screwed it up, but I double checked it, and yeah, they. Yeah, it's kind of cool. I kind of like it. Yeah, uh, they come back two months later, uh, December fifteenth, eighty nine, from the Ukrainian National Home. Fish and Blues Traveler alternate sets. John Popper sets in with Fish throughout. This will be a pattern. Um, yeah, bands don't play there anymore, but the Ukrainian National Home still exists. It's on Second uh, Avenue between Eighth and Ninth Street really good Ukrainian restaurant on the ground floor. It's one block away from this place, Veselka, that's always totally crowded and there's lines. But the Ukrainian National Home food is better and there's no lines. So there's your, uh, your like, like New York City inside baseball food tip. They would come back one more time two weeks later on December 30th, 1989 and play the Wetlands where they play their first ever version of Auld Lang Syne. And I can't help but think about Fish at this point, they're now in New York. They're what is it, fifth time, fourth time of 1989, starting to rise. If they have any idea that five years from tonight they're going to play MSG, I doubt it. But it's just like a fascinating little moment. Who knows? I I also think that Trey was probably like 16 and thought he'd be playing MSG in 20 years. (laughs) (laughs) The ambition, whenever the ambition was always there. they waste no time. Uh, 90s start, the probably the best decade that Fish has ever played. March 3rd, Wetlands again. Get a Mike's opener, a coil into Lizard, a Yem into Possum, and more John Popper. What do we got next? More Wetlands. Um, these Wetlands shows sound like a <laughs> lot of fun. <laughs> on, on tape, they sound like they're yes. probably a hell of a time. Uh uh, September 13th of 1990, fall tour opener. Um, loads of debuts. Landlady 2 at Assy Festival? Ass? Uh, I forget. I don't know how to pronounce it. That's the middle part of... Uh, middle part of Google Park. I don't yeah, think yeah, I've yeah. ever said it out loud. Um, <laughs> the Assy Festival. Uh, Buried Alive, Paul and Silas, McGillis Stash. Um, clear turning point in the band's history. Another one would come three months later on 122890 um, at the Marquee. Um, this is a huge show in their history, as this is when Sue Drew, um, who was A and R rep for Electra Records, first saw them. Um, according to um, interviews, she had already dug Longboy album, thought they were kind of kind of a trip when she went to check them out, and just fell in love with the four boys from Vermont and the whole crowd energy, and really got into it, um, and uh, just made getting them on Electra sort of a passion project of hers. The show also features a Forbin's Mockingbird into Mike's Groove. A tweezer, Manteca, and a tweezer. More John Popper. Uh, jumping into 91, the marquee again. Um, well, you've got uh, February 16th, 91. You've got a double encore of Possum into Rocky Mountain Way into Possum. Uh, 
later that summer, July 15th, 91, The Academy. This is a single set show with the giant country horns. And then jumping into 1992, you got a show on March 14th, 92 from the Roseland where they would play eight years later. Uh, they play Harry Hood with a We're Off to See the Wizard tease and more. Was there a guest that night? More John Popper. <laughs> I think Trey got the last laugh in that relationship. Dave, what do we got in uh, 93 and 94? So um, 1993, early on, February 5th and February 6th, two-night run at Roseland. Some Bowie, vibration of life into Bowie. More John Popper. This was... Uh, 1993, I think Blues Traveler's Save His Soul came out. Third record. Pretty good album. Maybe my favorite Blues Traveler record. This is before Runaround, so John Popper had a lot of time to jump on stage with Trey. This is also um, February 6th. I think that was when um, they played Mike's song. That was Call It What You Want, Say What You Will, You Know It's My Song. My Song! (laughs) And then 1994, they moved up to the Beacon Theater. All right. Uh, April 13th through April 15th, excellent set list, a lot of energy from spring 1994. On the 15th, they brought the giant country horns on for a classic set. This, of course, brings us to December 30th, 1994, the first time they ever played Madison Square Garden. You know the score here. This is the Wilson opener. This was a big MSG tweezer. Excellent. You enjoy myself. Probably overshadowed for that the night before in Providence. And then uh, 1995, the two nights at MSG, December 30th and December 31st. Incredible Harry Hood on the 30th. And then uh, New Year's 95, maybe the best fish show ever. Following that up, we get a two-night run at MSG in the fall of 1996, October 21st and October 22nd. These are two deeply uneven shows in a deeply uneven tour. The October run of 1996 does not resemble anything of the November run of 1996. However, you get a very killer, simple, and weak pog. And then our final two runs in New York City of the 90s, December 29th, 1997 through December 31st, 1997. This is a really great conclusion to what many call the best tour and year for fish. Deep Jamming in 1229. 1230 is my personal favorite show of all time. And set two of 1231. I've listened to this a lot lately. It's massively underrated. Not as many people talk about it as they should. The Mike's, Mike's groove in there is fantastic stuff. And then we wrap up with the first four-night fish run at MSG, December 28th through December 31st, 98. Uh, Carini and Wolfman's on the first night. 1229 is a all caps complete show. One of my favorite shows of all time. Great 2001. 1230 has some really great dark ambient jamming. And 1231 is probably the best non-95 Cypress New Year's show ever. Mm-hmm. 1230 was of this run was my first MSG show. Uh, I didn't go to any others of it, but it's really, I think, a fantastic for uh four night run for them. And in a lot of ways, some of the, um, some of the ambient, um, places they're going really in the prelude to that 2001 you mentioned and some of the stuff in um, the second set of 1230 really foreshadows yes. where they'd be going the next couple of years. Yeah, that show has like a jam tacked onto Squirming Coil that's really cool. Yeah, right? a, full, a full band jam on Squirming yes. Coil. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. 
That was like the MS, that was like the Radio City Music Hall ghost of like intros on Beyond the Pond before playing <laughs> the jam. So let's listen to a little bit of the uh, Mike Gordon led portion of the ghost from May 22nd, 2000 from Radio City Music Hall.
If you're like me, things like music, running, and cooking all bring happiness and meaning. 
However, there are times where even the things you rely on for happiness are not enough to help you achieve your goals. The good news is, BetterHelp Online Counseling is there for you. BetterHelp Online Counseling is a way for you to connect with a professional counselor in a safe, private, and conveniently online environment. Schedule your own secure video or phone session, plus chat and text with your therapist at your own convenience. Everything you share is confidential, and licensed professional counselors are available with specializations in depression, stress, anxiety, relationships, sleeping, trauma, anger, family conflicts, LGBT matters, grief, and self-esteem, among more. BetterHelp is available worldwide, and if you're not happy with your counselor at any time, you can request a new one at no additional charge. With over 3,000 licensed therapists, you can start communicating in under 24 hours with non-crisis counselors. Schedules can be set up weekly over phone or video, and financial aid is available for those who qualify. I've been using BetterHelp for the last few months, and I feel a strong sense of clarity, purpose, and understanding in speaking with my counselor. It's important to speak with a professional when you're feeling in need of communication and understanding. Beyond the Pond listeners get 10% off their first month with BetterHelp by using the discount code BTP. That's BTP. So why not get started today? Go to betterhelp.com slash BTP. Simply fill out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs and get matched with a counselor you'll love. Again, that's betterhelp.com slash BTP. All right, guys. Thank you for hanging with us here in that phenomenal take on Ghost. That jam just like closed my eyes and you can just kind of drift off with the band. It's really fantastic stuff. So in this first section, we wanted to talk. We're thinking about this jam and kind of the style that the band was playing in and kind of what led to this music that Fish was playing in Fish 2000. And we kept coming back to the idea of Krautrock. So we wanted to talk about Krautrock to Fish 2000. And Krautrock's kind of like a genre that we've dabbled around and we've jumped around in like various episodes. And we've never done like a full deep dive. And so we felt it was worthwhile to do one here and uh, we're going to be talking about Krautrock here in segment two. We wanted to give a brief definition of the term Krautrock. So we know that some of our listeners, it may be the first time that they've heard this. So this is a kind of broad genre. It's experimental rock that really developed in West Germany in the late 1960s and early 1970s. Among artists who blended elements of psychedelic rock, electronic music, and various avant-garde influences. Um, these artists really avoid like the blues influences and song structures of Anglo-American rock music. Instead here, they use hypnotic rhythms, tape machine techniques, and early synthesizers. Uh, prominent groups associated are Noi, Can, Faust, Kraftwerk, Cluster, Ashra Temple, Popol Vuh, Amundul, Tangerine Dream, and Harmonia. This was originally a term adopted by the British press as a humorous umbrella label for the diverse German scene. Um, many of the artists disliked this term because it was a very diverse scene. It was a way to kind of like pigeonhole everybody in. 
And the movement was really born out of like the radical student movement of 1968. It's the German youth rebelled against their country's legacy in World War II. Sought a popular musical distinction from traditional German music and American pop. Period contributed to development of ambient music and techno. Influenced subsequent genres such as post-punk, new age uh, music, as well as post-rock. Before we jump into that, I do want to note we're recording this on May 7th, and we received today the sad news that Florian Schneider passed away today at the age of 73. Uh, Schneider was a co-founder of the group Kraftwerk, who is going to play a uh, big impact, especially like on um, this band I'm going to talk about, but in everything that we're talking about here from a Kraftwerk standpoint, Kraftwerk kind of sits above the genre in a lot of cases, and I think one of the big themes I've been reading about today uh, with regards to Schneider's passing is how much of an impact his music and craft work had on popular music and how unknown that is in kind of the larger musical scene. So definitely sad to hear that. Yeah, this morning I um, went through on some craft work just after hearing the news and the one I put on was Autobahn, which is not their best record perhaps, but it's the first one I heard. And sometimes you just kind of go for the first one you really encountered. And the second side of that record is something that I think fish, anyone who loves fish doesn't know should check out. It just starts with a really melodic groove for about six or seven minutes and then just blossoms into, into this beautiful, um, really colorful, um, just soundscape. And if you've seen fish more than two or three times, you've seen them do this trick before and it just never gets old. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's really influential stuff and, um, definitely sad for Schneider and his larger family. Um, huge, huge impact on the, on music that we hear today. So the band I'm going to talk about, uh, kind of came out of craft work and that is Noi, N-E-U exclamation point, if you will. And the album that we're going to talk about of theirs is Noi 2 from, I believe, 1973, 1972. And the song I'm going to play is this incredible 11-minute track, Fur Immer, Forever, which kind of like what you were saying, uh, Bob, about the Autobahn record of uh, Kraftwerk. This sounds like a fish jam. Like this sounds like a fish jam from 1997 from like its groove and, you know, it's kind of like rising action and, you know, it's kind of full breakdown and then it comes back. It's, it's really, really incredible stuff that if you listen to fish in the late nineties, you would enjoy this a lot. So Noi are a German krautrock duo formed in Dusseldorf in 1971 by Klaus Dinger and Michael Rother following their departure from Kraftwerk. Their producer, Connie Plank, was regarded as their hidden member. And the group released three albums. Noi, Noi 2, and Noi 75 before disbanding. There have been a few reunions since then. While the band achieved limited commercial success, they're one of the central kraut rock bands associated with West Germany in the 1970s. They helped develop the 4-4 Motric beat, and had a huge influence on punk and electronica. Their name refers to what they call the strongest word in advertising and a major marketing theme in West Germany at the time. Their debut album was a commercial flop 
but it was heavily influ- it heavily influenced the work of Brian Eno, David Bowie, Iggy Pop, Tom York, The Sex Pistols, Sonic Youth, Stereolab, and Tortoise. We have talked about many of those artists on this episode. Some of them, some would argue too many times. Looking at you, Mr. Eno, I would say not enough. And if you enjoy the music that we've played from those artists, you would absolutely love Noi. Uh, the band's second album, which we're featuring here, contained, contained some of the first remixes put to tape, a result of the fact that they ran out of their advance and the label refused to finance the rest of their recording session on account of the fact that their debut did not sell well. They recorded alternate takes on their of their early tracks and singles and played them back at alternate speeds and layered them. Their third LP was essentially two solo albums cut in half, the ambient work of Rother on side one, and the more keyboard-driven dance music of Dinger and Side 2. This record was seen as a departure from the larger Krautrock scene, which only further isolated their fan base and basically capped all potential growth for the band. The duo would then try to reunite 10 years later in 1985. They added more synthesizers in an attempt for a more commercialized sound, but they couldn't get on the same page and ultimately broke up. One of the unfortunate side effects of their disagreements was Dinger and Rother could never get on the same page to properly license their music, so it wasn't released on CDs during the CD boom of the 90s. Finally, we remastered them in 2001 after mastering them three times. And that said, the duo couldn't agree on licensing for their unreleased fourth album, Noi 4, and it was never released. They would attempt one final comeback before Dinger passed away in 2008. Rother, as well as Dinger's estate, were able to work through their issues and release their entire back catalog along with some unreleased recordings. Noi 2, of note, was produced by Can and Kraftwerks producer Conrad Plank. Like I said earlier, their kind of silent member, hidden member of the band. And the album's opening track is the one that we're going to feature here. Fur Immer, Forever. It's an 11-minute driving jam that perfectly exemplifies their style. It's bulbous and prodding and ever moving forward. The rest of the album serves as proof of how far you can push a lack of finances, insane ambitions, and failed experiments. It's a pretty essential listening, even if it's no masterpiece. I recommend at least one spin through it for all of our listeners. So on that, we're going to go ahead and listen to a bit of the opening track of Noi 2, Fur Immer, Forever, by the band Noi.
Okay, Brian. Thank you for um, that crash course in Noi. I'm going to, uh, of course, if we're on the topic of Krautrock, we got to talk about Can. So I'm going to talk about uh, their album. I believe it's pronounced Ig Bamyasi from 1972. I'm going to play the song I'm So Green. So Can were late 60s German rock band that along with Noe and Kraftwerk are kind of what one thinks of when the first thing they think of is Krautrock. So the core of this band was comprised of, um, now pronounce, uh, forgive me if I butcher some of these names, Holger Zuke on uh, bass and tape editing, Ermin Schmidt was the keyboard player, Michael Caroli was the guitar, and probably most importantly for this band, Jackie Libizet on drums. The vocalists were uh, initially the American Malcolm Mooney on their first record, and then somewhat better known from 1970 1973, Demo Suzuki. When one thinks of Can, they really think of grooves. I mean, I can think of few bands in which the rhythm section was so integral to the overall sound and feel of a band. Um, Zuke and Lee Bezet, they lock in like few others. I mean, the drums on Can Records. They kind of unfold like ridiculous math equations that I have no hope of ever solving. Um, both men died within a few months of each other in 2017, unfortunately. I think uh, both in their late 70s. Uh, describing the sound of can is somewhat of a fruitless task. I tend to think of a type of grooving psychedelia with nonsense vocals that utilize elements of noise and cut-and-paste editing. Uh, many of... They're often 20-minute songs or chopped and edited down from jams that were often like six hours long. I kind of think of what uh, like Teo Macero did to Miles Davis's albums in the late 60s, like Bitches Brew, In a Silent Way, same type of uh, like editing style. I think uh, people consider Tego Mago to be their best album with uh, Stone Cold Jams like Oh Yeah and Hallelujah, but... Uh, I think Igbamyasi might be the best place for a noob to start, and you can kind of work your way backwards. I mean, you don't really associate accessibility with Can, but uh, this album kind of contains relatively shorter songs, some of their tastier grooves, not to mention uh, a German top 10 hit with the song Spoon. It's kind of the kind of record that someone will put on at a party or barbecue, and like kind of like eventually you stop what you're doing and think, the fuck is this? And uh, you aren't hearing things. The song from this album, Sing Swan Song, really does form the entire backbone of the graduation era Kanye West song, Drunken Hot Girls. Yes, uh, the song Vitamin C was utilized to very good effect in Paul Thomas Anderson's Inherent Vice, which I think might explain why it's the most streamed can song on Spotify. And uh, we're going to play I'm So Green because it's... Uh, Delightfully groovy, probably my favorite song on the record, and it's something I always sing to myself when I'm sautéing kale. So uh, let's listen to I'm So Green by Can off of uh, Igba Miasi. <laughs> Back in my head, those lights in my head. 
That was a pretty salient point a little bit back um, about Tagomago, 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 and um, Ege Bimyasi. Uh, see, I've never pronounced these things out loud, so I apologize in advance. Uh, <laughs> I first got into them because someone slipped me back in the days when people would slip you a CD. They slipped me a copy of Tagomago, and I dug the first track quite a lot, but never totally kind of grokked the whole thing. Um, and it wasn't until a few years later when I heard Ege Banyasi and uh, just kind of got it and then went backwards and kind of got all of it from there. So uh, that's really a great suggestion for an entry point. Uh, the one that I have to suggest today, um, uh, as far as Krautrock goes, is Manuel Goshing's E2-E4, which is a chess reference. Uh, he is an influential guitarist of that Krautrock era. Um, he was in a band called Ashra Temple and uh, did some minimalist guitar records. Uh, he's a frequent collaborator with the synth pioneer Klaus Schulz, who's one of my personal favorites. Um, and this record has pretty cool origin story behind it. Um, he uh, had a long plane ride, wanted something to listen to. Uh, what did he do? He did what we all do and just made a classic record. Uh, he, uh, it sounds <laughs> impossible, uh, but he recorded it all in one improvised take using a sequencer, keyboards, synthesizer patterns, electronic beats, and eventually his guitar. Um, and it reminded me a lot of this ghost jam in that it's pretty long. It's 60 minutes. The first half is very minimalist, um, much like what Mike and fish were doing. Um, just created from interlocking parts. In the second half, he brings his guitar in and he marries uh, just this organic, um, really soulful guitar solo to what might be considered a cold kind of electronic um, first half. And um, I would say also uh, with, what, with what pertains to the ghost, while I wouldn't say his guitar has similar tones to Trey, he was someone who was a fan of Latin rock and Latin jazz. And to me, to my ears, it sounds like there's a shared Santana influence between him and between Trey. Um, and um, the uh, record went on to become hugely influential in dance music. It really, to um, a lot of DJs, expanded the possibility of what techno could do. He himself, Gotching himself, was surprised to find that people played it in dance clubs and discotheques. And he was shocked that it would eventually become so influential. Um, but to me, the great thing is about how malleable it is um, for something that should sound like a challenge. Uh, you can dance to it in a club or you can play it in the back porch with a beer. It's complex, yet it's approachable. It's repetitive, but it's never boring. 
as with so many great musical works that are built around loops or repeated phrases, to me, one of the great pleasures is the ability to just sink so deep into it that you can't tell when the phrase or the loop begins, when they end, um, and you just get lost in it. Uh, your ear constantly gravitates to different instruments and focuses on one instrument solely, and then when it shifts away to another one and comes back, that you'll find that part has evolved. And to me, um, it's a lot how you process a fish jam when you're in there in person. For me, I, I focus on fish for a minute and then back to page. And, you know, I think we all kind of do that. Um, and it's just a, a genuinely special album. And um, I hope you play a little bit of uh, a passage from it that includes the guitar solo. we're facing right now has threatened the livelihood and mental health of countless musicians. Backline is the music industry's mental health and wellness resource hub, and their work is more vital than ever. Launched in 2019, Backline aims to give artists, crew, and their families quick and easy access to mental health and wellness resources. Backline is currently hosting virtual support groups as well as yoga, meditation, and breathwork sessions. Osiris is proud to partner with Backline. To donate, learn more, or to get in touch for personalized care, visit backline.care. Again, that's backline.care. So segment two, as we say every time we get to this segment now, we are thankful for new albums. There's so much insanity happening in our world right now. Obviously, it is having devastating effects on the larger music industry, but we are so thankful and grateful that there is new music being played. Um, as of time of recording, the first Bandcamp Friday just happened. Once this, out, once this uh, episode is published, Bandcamp Friday will be back uh, June 1st. So start making your list and start with these three records. These are great records to um, purchase. All the money goes directly to artists on Bandcamp, uh, the special Bandcamp Fridays, first Friday of each month uh, into July. 
So the album I'm going to discuss is actually one I spoke about during our second live deep dive where we focused on the July 17th, 98 second set. But I wanted to feature it again here because it's one of my favorite records of the year and it certainly deserves more praise. Plus it deserves a spot on the uh, Instagram picture that we post with every episode. Uh, This is Arboretum's Let It All In. This is a fantastic kaleidoscope record from the longtime Baltimore folk group. You get hints of Richard Thompson mixed in with dream pop and psychedelia. It's what feels like an October album, but really fits the current mood of inward exploration while the world is being renewed all around us in such challenging ways. But also it's spring. It's kind of a strange spring record in some ways. There's a timeless quality here is kind of what I'm saying. And that encourages immersion and repeated listens. Just when you're lulled by the gorgeous production and the intricate song crafting, there emerges. It's like Ditch Trilogy era solo to break your contemplation. So Arboretum rose from Baltimore in the shadows of Animal Collective in a scene where Beach House and Dan Deacon were just moving on from. They had never reached those heights to this point in their career, but their creativity and ideas have slowly developed to a peak period here today. You know, whereas Deacon uses Animal Collective's boundless noise and Beach House became the archetypical dream pop band, Arboretum kind of minds Richard Thompson and Will Oldham and the larger English folk and psychedelia scene. Sounds that were less prominent even in the indie zeitgeist, yet sound wholly original in time and place in 2020. Acceptance in isolation is a major theme here. That's a fitting theme for all of us. You can hear it both lyrically and in the patient musical passages, which allows founder and lead guitarist Dave Human the opportunity to roam with ease, showing off his his guitar chops. And man, does he have them. Thematically, you know, isolation wasn't exactly selling in the uh, late aughts and early 2010s when Connection was at every indie band this side of Bon Iver, who rose up in that era, seemed to pine for. And yet here in the spring of 2000, that is the larger cultural moment and theme. Thus, this record shimmers with immediacy and lasting impact. You get the sense that Human took a drive from Baltimore to Wyoming and spent a few months living in a cabin, and it really meant something. Musically and lyrically, there are just such big ideas here that could only have come from the West. What makes a record special, however, isn't necessarily its ambition. Many bands have ambition. It's how clear you can hear the entire band connect throughout. They understand human songwriting and that they're with him the entire way. Songs like No Sanctuary Blues can stop and shift on a dime while Night Theme is a blissed out jam. Peak of the record is unquestionably on the 12-minute title track, Let It All In, which serves as a sort of updated take on Wilco's Spider Kid Smoke with a bit of ditch trilogy Neil Young thrown in for good measure. Ultimately, this album gives me everything I'm looking for in music right now. It's intentional, it's full band communal, it's mysterious, and it offers new ideas and thoughts on each listen. Cannot recommend Arboretum's Let It All In enough. David, what do you have for us? I love that Arboretum record, for starters. Yes. That is uh, easily in my top five of this year. So yes. I'm going to talk about an album that's probably my number one of this year so far. Uh, this is the new record by um, the Massachusetts by way of Germany 
bass band called Elder, and the new album is called Omens. Of course, um, I really, really loved their uh, three-song 2019, I guess you call it an EP, The Golden Silver Sessions. The songs are quite long. I still think of that as a full-fledged album, but uh, that was my third favorite album of 2019. Probably should have been my number one, and uh, well, that album focused largely on uh, the Krautrock and uh, German Kosmich influences, kind of um, spacey repetition with huge peaks and no vocals. So, but their new album, Omens, gives you five songs. It's just under an hour. Uh, Elder really are masters at the long, unfolding song. And um, I think initially when they came out in the mid-2000s, and the first album came out in 2009, they were a little heavier, somewhat of a stoner doom metal band. I'd say their sound now is still extremely rocking. It's kind of more uh, expansive, progressive psych rock, which kind of reminds you a lot of uh, the second, and I think still best, Paul Bearer album, uh, Foundation to Burden. I'm also getting some early Yes, and even stuff like Rush's Hemispheres. It kind of takes like the Krautrock bits of their last EP, piles on lots of synthesizers, there's vocals, just webs of really expansive guitars. It's an awesome headphone listen. I mean, they're practically an instrumental band. Uh, the frontman guitarist Nick DeSalvo, I think he sings on almost like 15% of the albums, uh, like 56 minutes. I think it's pretty clear that he'd rather be shredding, but uh, his voice is fine. Lyrics are fine. Kind of, um, I don't want to say your typical doom metal stuff about like fallen civilizations, but kind of just in terms of... Uh, very well produced, quite expansive, hard rocking music. Probably my favorite album of the year so far. I mean, and, um, their album from 2017, Reflections of a Floating World, is also very good, somewhat in this vein. Although uh, I think based upon the last album, they kind of ramped up more of uh, like the crot rock on this album. But yeah, anybody who wants uh, adventurous progressive rock, Elders, where it's at, and Omens is an extremely good album. So uh, this one's probably significantly different from Elder. Uh, <laughs> I've chosen Sarah Louise, Earth and Its Concerns. Um, so far, I would say 2020 is kind of a shit year on a lot of different levels. I don't know how it is for you guys, but... It's pretty shitty. <laughs> how yes. it is for me. Yes. Um, it's not great. I actually had tickets to see Stereo Lab tonight. Um, and that's, that's something that's not happening. Uh, had the babysitter, had the restaurant, had stereo lab. None of that's happening. Um, I'm happy talking with you guys, but (laughs) kind of a bummer. I I understand. Don't (laughs) worry. Uh, that said, it is weirdly, um, kind of a great year for music. You've highlighted a lot of it on your show. Um, the last three or four months, um, I've been discovering a lot too. This is one that I have come back to a lot. I'm highlighting it because um, I sort of chose it the old-fashioned way. I looked at my most played on iTunes, and this is what I have played the most. (laughs) And there's a reason for that. It tends to quiet my mind. It pushes a lot of noise and stress to the background um, without really being strictly soothing. It's um, exploratory and exciting. There's a love for Sonics in it that I appreciate. Um, Sarah Louise is someone who... Uh, started off finger picking an acoustic 12 string kind of um, uh, primitivism um, rooted in Appalachian tradition um, or the epic ballad tradition. Um, and she would do that either by herself or with fiddler Sally Ann Morgan. Um, those records are 
really objectively brilliant. Um, I don't know if I quite have the ear for that kind of thing. It doesn't quite, um, I, I don't come from that tradition myself, I guess you could say. Uh, with her 2018 album, Deeper Woods, it started to click with me a lot more as she began expanding her palette to include more electric instrumentation and layered vocals, taking the psychedelic flourishes that had always been in her work and blowing it out in full color, joining the tradition of musicians who have switched from acoustic to electric and gotten a bit headier in the process. Um, I kind of noted uh, Garcia and Dylan as two of those, but there's just Mm. a long tradition of that. And now I think she's at a point where she can really do no wrong. Her last record, uh, last year's Nighttime Birds and Morning Stars was one of my favorites of last year. Um, I know she titles her albums and songs to reference this stuff, but that record sounds like Late at Night, and this one, the new one, really does sound like Morning in ways that are hard to describe, but incredibly comforting. Um, it was made to accompany um, an animated project called Fire Underground, um, I believe about um, environmental issues in Appalachia, but I'm not totally sure. Um, she decided to release it by herself at the start of the uh, coronavirus shutdown. Um, I believe it's pay what you wish on Bandcamp. So if you wait till the next day um, or the next uh, Bandcamp day, which you said June 8th, I believe, um, and pick it up uh, then. Yeah, first Friday in June. It's pay, yeah, it's pay what you wish. Whenever it's pay what you wish, I always pay $4.20 um, just to be corny. But <laughs> give her $10, give her $20. Um, Anyway, I love the idea she created it with this animation in mind, but then let you, as the audience member, create your own associations. Um, It's often quiet and contemplative, yet she uses a wide variety of instruments to prevent it from ever feeling static. Uh, And I also think just by beginning her year, uh, sorry, her year, her career, rooted in centuries-old traditions, that has allowed her to experiment further and further out while retaining that center. And it's a way that feels natural, by which I mean of nature, not like a natural talent, and even spiritual. It's far out music, but it has a feeling of familiarity and closeness to it that just really keeps me coming back. As two middle-aged dads who run a fish podcast, Dave and myself are both well-bearded men. And because of that, we're constantly on the lookout for great products to groom and trim our beards. And that's why we are so thankful in this trying time for a company like Harry's. Harry's knows that now is not the time to overpay for razors at the drugstore. Harry's knows that sometimes it's better to stay inside. That's why they ship razors and gel and product directly to you so you can experience the quality of a Harry's shave in just a few days from the convenience of your own home. So we encourage all of our listeners to join the 10 million who have tried Harry's. Claim your special trier offer by going to harrys.com slash BTP. That's harrys.com slash BTP. Harry's has really returned to the essential get quality durable blades at a fair price just two dollars per blade they've cut out the middleman they manufacture their blades in their german blade factory that's been owning precision blades for a century which means you get incredibly high quality blades at factory direct prices it's super convenient because the blade refills are delivered directly to your door on your schedule with or without a subscription and you can feel really good about your purchase 
because they have a 100% quality guarantee. If you don't love your shave, let them know. They'll give you a full refund. And 1% of the proceeds are set aside for nonprofit organizations that are devoted to helping provide access to better health care for men and veterans. And I'll just say that um, my beard's gotten a bit unruly in quarantine. But no matter what, I refuse to have a neck beard. I'm not that lazy. <laughs> I cannot do my neck beard. I gotta have lines. I use Harry's to keep those lines intact. The rest of it gets kind of bushy, but there was gonna be uh, there's a line where the pair will not go, and that's what I'm using Harry's for. Absolutely. So listeners of Beyond the Pond can redeem their Harry's trial set at Harry's.com/btp. You'll get a weighted ergonomic handle for a firm grip. Five blade razor with a lubricating strip and trimmer blade, rich lathering shave gel with aloe to keep your skin hydrated, and a travel blade cover to keep your razor dry and easy to grab on the go. It's a fantastic deal from a fantastic company that can help us out in these difficult times. So go to harrys.com btp to start shaving better today. All right. So segment two here. So we talked earlier about, you know, fish playing radio city and their journey in New York city throughout the 1990s prominently. And New York city is such a destination for musical styles, musical scenes, artists, bands themselves. And we wanted to focus on a really special in specific era in New York City, around the same time that Fish played this Radio City ghost. And this segment is titled Meet Me in the Bathroom. Uh, there was a really fantastic book that came about it three years ago, uh, Oral History of New York City during the late 90s and early 2000s by Lizzie Goodman, correct? Yep. Yes. Yep. Um, and we wanted to kind of focus on that era. Um, this era of New York City pre and post 9-11 just sees a huge influx of creative artists and musicians that move to New York City, start making music together, start living in Brooklyn, but some are living down in the East Village. I have two New Yorkers on the line here, so I don't want to uh, speak incorrectly from a geographical standpoint. I know that they're going to share some thoughts about the city at this point in time as well. I've always been fascinated with New York at this point in time. I grew up in the Midwest. I grew up in Chicago and always kind of looked at New York as just this, you know, incredible beacon of creativity and um, just such diverse music that was coming out. And this all came out when I was about like 16 and 17, had a pretty profound impact on me. And also of note in the music that we're talking about here, two of the biggest bands of this era, one of which we're going to talk about, uh, The Strokes and The White Stripes, actually played Radio City in uh, 2002, I believe. And it was a pretty like big moment for this scene where it felt like, you know, as, as we talk about these bands, there was a lot of throwbacks to the 70s and late 60s in New York City in this sound. And it was kind of this big what if moment for these bands to just explode over the next decade. I'm going to talk about a different band here. I'm going to talk a band that I am kind of shocked. We've never discussed on this podcast before. At least I'm 99% sure we've never discussed them. And that probably is, not. I don't think so. I don't think so. And if we have, 
this record that we're going to talk about is worth talking about twice. So, but I checked, I checked the stats. I don't think we've ever talked about that. And that is Interpol. And we're going to talk about the album, Turn On The Bright Lights. So this is a near perfect record. And uh, we're trying to make amends of, if we haven't spoken about them, getting them in before episode 100. So Interpol formed in 1997 in Manhattan by lead singer-songwriter Paul Banks, lead guitarist Daniel Kessler, bassist Carlos Dengler, and original drummer Greg Drudy, who was shortly replaced by Sam Fogarino. Well, New York City is interesting. I mean, it's almost like it was a city without a band throughout much of the 80s and 90s, and it was kind of during this pre and post 9-11 period where the city becomes a hotbed for indie rock in a variety of styles. I've always kind of thought of the Strokes as the archetypical band of this era. They're a bit punk with the wave, this hyper trend-setting look and sound to them. And in this sense, Interpol is kind of like the counter to the Strokes. They're the more refined sound and look, this dimly lit New York City stroll, the black suit, the urban millennial male, the cocktail in hand, 401k plan, but within the brains of existentially dreadful and cripply creative songwriting. They were compared to Joy Division and Television, and their sound relies heavily on staccato-based harmonized guitars and the snare. The album in question here, Turn On The Bright Lights, was their debut album in 2002. It's one of the most acclaimed records of the year. Pitchfork had this as their number one album of 2002, and it's also associ- it's often associated as one of the defining albums of the era. This was awarded a 9.5 by Pitchfork in 2002, and I'm going to argue that there's no way it gets that in 2020. Probably a 7.8. The band was originally formed by Kessler and Drudy. Kessler then connected with Carlos D, as he was known at an NYU philosophy course. And after he met Banks in France, the two reconnected in the East of the Village and decided to connect. Uh, They played a number of shows around New York City in the late 90s and early 2000s, but didn't have a name for a while, so it was hard for fans to continue returning to see them. They considered Las Amras and the French Letters before deciding on Interpol. They signed to Matador in 01, released Turn on the Bright Lights in August 2002. From a larger career standpoint, probably their biggest gig came in 2007 when they headlined one of the nights of Lollapalooza alongside Daft Punk, Muse, Pearl Jam, Ben Harper, a modest mouse. In addition of note, they've opened up for U2 on multiple tours, including throughout the 360 tour. Now, Turn on the Bright Lights was recorded in November 2001 at Tarkin Studios in Connecticut. One of my favorite parts of the book, Meet Me in the Bathroom, is where they talk about how they knew that they had to record outside of New York City because Carlos D couldn't handle recording in the city if he was able to go out. The opening track, the track that we're going to play Untitled was written specifically to open the band's shows and was untitled because the band sees it as an intro. It's one of my favorite songs of the aughts. Guitar is just incredible on it. The record would go on to influence The Killers and The XX and has become one of the most seminal post-9-11 New York City records of all time. It was ranked as number 20 on Pitchfork's top albums of the 2000s. Initially, there was a lot of skepticism surrounding their arrival. Uh, I should note as they appeared pre-packaged in their expensive suits and haircuts, but ultimately they proved themselves through the audience they built from the ground up and their fully realized debut. Ultimately, though, this was as high a height as Interpol would reach. There's something okay with that, though. Few bands ever record an album like this, let alone on their debut. And it's a stunning accomplishment. Interpol consistently sounds of a time and place, as some bands have to. 
To know New York City at the time of Fisher's Radio City performance is to know Interpol. With that, I'm excited to play for, I think, the first time, but it doesn't really matter if it's not, Untitled off of Turn On The Bright Lights by Interpol. I'm a, a very big fan of the first Interpol record. It's an amazing album. All these New York City bands had great debut records. And then the second album was always fine. And then the issue was kind of following it up after that. But to their credit, Interpol still exists. Like, Carlos D is long gone. But all the other dudes are still in that band. I think they might have played Madison Square Garden, like, last year. It was, like, half full. But they're kind of, like... Interpol's kind of had like a second life as like a legacy band, so, you know, good on Interpol. But the band I'm going to talk about briefly, I think we have to have talked about this band on Beyond the Palm before, but um, what the hell? I mean, you can't really talk about the New York City Rock Revival without talking about the Strokes, so I'm just going to briefly talk about, uh, is this it? I mean, come on, it's the Strokes, they were a fast machine, they kept their leather clean. They were the cutest ragamuffins the East Village had ever seen. I mean, listen to these guys' names. Nick Valenci, Nikolai Freitor, Fabrizio Moretti, Albert Hammond Jr. Of course, Albert Hammond Sr. being the guy who wrote It Never Rains in Southern California. And sweet, sweet Julian Casablancas. These are like all the real names. I think that, uh, Pretty sure that Casablancas first met Nick Valenci and uh, Fab Moretti when all three were students at the Dwight School in New York City's Upper East Side. Of course, uh, people in the city know that Dwight stands for uh, dumb white idiots getting high together. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, their 2001 debut, Is This It?, really is as good as the legend would have you believe, provided you either have a, a Japanese copy of the record or rig your Spotify playlist to include the song New York City Cops instead of the uh, inferior, but still pretty good, when it started. Because um, they had to include that song because in the wake of 9-11, when this album came out, 
Uh, you couldn't say anything bad about the New York City police force whatsoever. So uh, they were forced to take New York City cops off, despite it being one of their best songs. So, yeah, I mean, like Brian was saying, along with Interpol, also uh, the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs, Tangentially, the White Stripes, and I think a little bit later on, uh, the Rapture and DFA Records. The Strokes were uh, the poster boys for the, the New York City rock revival. They dressed like they had just played CBGB's 1977. They were all handsome, charmingly scruffy, and because they didn't play crushing new metal or uh, boy band pop, they were um, instead kind of halfway between television and the cars. They sang about girls and just being cool on the Lower East Side and the East Village. I think some of their early gigs uh, were at the aforementioned Luda Lounge, also Arlene's Grocery, which is still there, Long Gone Brownies in Avenue A, and the still existing Mercury Lounge on on, uh, on Houston Street. And I think um, <clears throat> the guy who managed them, Ryan Gentiles, he was the booker at the Mercury Lounge, and he quit that job to become the Strokes' manager. And, I mean, the debut album from the Strokes is pretty flawless. It does kind of a stylized capture of New York City circa 2001, when rock bands are back in style. And um, I moved to New York City in August of 2001, lived in the East Village, and everyone wanted to look like Julian Casablanca's. Everyone wanted to hang out at really dimly lit East Village bars on ratty couches. I mean, this is right in the middle of like Fish's hiatus. And I mean, I wasn't listening to much Fish at the time because of that. And it's kind of uncanny how many like fake Julians were running around the smoky East Village bars that I would frequent. I mean, to get a bar in the East Village, you just need to have a dark room, a jukebox, and a bunch of ratty chairs and couches. I mean, ratty couches are all the rage. You really couldn't see much of that level of darkness anyway. I mean, I was in law school at the time, so I wasn't doing drugs at 2 o'clock in the morning like a lot of the people in the, uh, in the book meet me in the bathroom. But I was there, man. And, uh... If you haven't heard Is This It, I'd be kind of surprised, but you should get on it because it's a pretty amazing record put on at a party at a barbecue. Wall-to-wall bangers. I mean, the follow-up album, Room on Fire, was also very good. Everything after that had smatterings of greatness. Uh, They actually just put out a brand new album called The New Abnormal, which was actually named that prior to the pandemic. They were uh, kind of uh, omniscient in that regard. But really, I mean, the Strokes are kind of like the American version of Oasis in that they can pack festivals (laughs) and arenas based on the strength of the first two records. After that, everything is just gravy. I mean, nobody really cares about any Strokes albums other than the first two except dudes aged roughly 37 to 44. And that's fine. (laughs) Let's play Barely Legal. That's kind of everything you kind of need to know about the Strokes in like three minutes.
was living in, in New York at the time. I'm not like a New Yorker. I live in Maine now, but I was living in New York uh, during this time. And uh, it's kind of a funny thing. Maybe I was just not dialed in, but I didn't really hear about the Strokes until they had gone to London, to, to the UK. Oh. And then kind of looked like blew up there and came back and went kind of like above ground is how, my recollection of it. Yeah, as big as they were in the States, they definitely blew up in the UK first. Like the NME yeah. thought that they were just like the second coming. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I remember, I do remember the ratty chairs and the couches though. Lots of ratty couches from, God, 1930s maybe yeah. that, that just the cigarette smoke from just emanated off of them. And the frayed, yeah, yeah. Yep. I mean, people. I mean, say what you say what you will about like Bloomberg, but the smoking ban probably like gave me five years of life. <laughs> I I didn't smoke. I I never smoked cigarettes, but just like the secondhand smoke inside New York City bars was unfucking believable at that time. And, and probably getting the ratty couches out of the bars gave you another like two years. Yes, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Uh, so. The one that I've chosen uh, is, I guess, a bit of a cheat. The album, it's uh, Secret Machines, Now Here Is Nowhere. It's a cheat because it came out a little later than some of the ones you mentioned. Uh, I had thought about highlighting the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs. Um, I think they're a fantastic band. Um, I always have a struggle to find ins to talk about punk and punk-influenced music, um, personally. I don't know about you guys. Mm. Um, but the Secret Machines were kind of like the next wave um, that came a little bit later, um, kind of like the TV on the radio, LCD sound system, um, mm, yeah, wave that kind of like were bubbling about, but really broke closer to 2005 than to 2000. Um, the band even started out in Dallas before moving to New York. I don't know if it was for personal reasons or if it was sort of to be opportunistic and kind of like trail behind the strokes. Um, either way it paid off for them they put out an ep on a small label in williamsburg brooklyn and then from from there signed to warner brothers and released this one um but like bands like uh tv and the radio and interpol they were driven by post-punk influences and rhythms and just a killer freaking drum sound and really the rhythms is what they were all about um and I think that even goes to the bands that you mentioned too, um, where all these bands, even though they wrote some great guitar riffs, I think they almost used guitars as percussion instruments uh, rather than sort of to create melodies. It might just be me. That's something that kind of like set them apart from grunge and post-grunge in the 90s. Um, so that use of guitar and keyboards was in vogue at the time. And um so Secret Machines were fronted by Brandon Curtis, who uh, was their lead singer, bassist, keyboardist. Um, he eventually became a touring member of Interval and probably played that Madison Square Garden gig that you just mentioned. Um, <laughs> his brother, Benjamin, was a guitarist. He went on to form the School of Seven Bells, which was a pretty strong indie rock band um, of the late 2000s. Um, sadly, he died in 2013 at the unfathomably early age of 35 mm. um it's cancer. It's cancer yeah yeah so that's that's pretty rough yeah, yeah. school, school of seven, seven bells, bells is great they're more of like a shoegazy mm -hmm. yep it's, like female vocals right exactly yeah um so uh now here's nowhere is a bit of a front-loaded album 
Um, by the end, there's maybe one or two many ballads, which wasn't their strength, but the first half of the album sounds so good that that's, that's okay. Um, I got this CD at a store in Bryant Park, um, which is sort of midtown, actually not too, too far from Radio City. I remember putting it on my click wheel iPod when I got home and walking <laughs> around with it and just feeling how big it sounded. Um, and uh, to me, that was a crucial part of those early 2000s New York bands is how they sounded just to scale into a pace of a city. Yeah. Um, I, also, you had to listen to these bands on Clickwheel iPod. <laughs> yes. yes. <laughs> they, the Clickwheel iPod practically came with like the strokes. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> um, but you know, you know how people talk about Midwestern artists like Wilco and, and Jason Molina as having this kind of widescreen open yeah. sound to match uh, the Midwest or what East coast critics think of the Midwest. Um, those early 2000s New York bands were the same thing only with New York. They sounded like the city. They were huge sounding angular, slightly grimy and really fast pace. Um, and, uh, the later generations at uh, towards the end of the decade, when it was more like animal collective and grizzly bear and dirty projectors, uh, never quite felt like New York bands in the same way, even though they did, um, really break through when they moved to Brooklyn. And the song I'd like you to highlight is First Wave Intact. It's the first song on the record of the Secret Machines record. And it's something that I just recommend the first day that it's like 65 degrees and you're lacing up your Nikes and going out for a run. Just throw this album on and you will, by the end of the summer, lose like 8 to 20 pounds. Ooh, I, I need that. So I'm do <laughs> yeah, this. after after the uh, <laughs> shutdown, we're all, we all need it. <laughs> Shooting us First way down 
right, guys. Thank you for hanging with us here in episode 98. As Dave mentioned at the top, we are rapidly getting close to episode 100. I will shout out we are recording episode 100 with a very special guest who is going to host the episode. And we are asking for you to, this is an AMA uh, uh, episode, ask us anything, send your questions that you've been dying to ask us, whether or not it's why do we actually like the war on drugs or what is the worst fish show we've ever seen, whatever it may be, it doesn't matter, anything in between, send them to at Osiris Pod on Twitter. They're collecting questions and they'll be read to us live for that episode. And don't send them to us. We want to be surprised. Send them to the Osiris Pod. Yes, 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 yes. But um, quick recap here of our episode where we focused on the Radio City Ghost with our buddy Bob Kerr. Uh, We talked in segment one from Krautrock to Fish. I focused on Noi Fur Immer forever off of Noi 2. Dave talked about Can, song I'm So Green off, uh, what is this album? How is this pronounced? Igi Bamyasi? Igi Bamyasi. Uh, <laughs> and then Bob talked about Manuel uh, Gotching's E2E4, that 45-minute long, incredibly influential uh, jam, uh, single-track album. Uh, in new album recommendations, I talked about Arboretum's Let It All In, Dave talked about Elder Omens, and Bob talked about Sarah Louise, Earth and Its Concerns. Three very different albums that you should definitely be listening to right now. And please remember to buy records like theirs on Bandcamp on on the first Friday in June. I don't know the date off the top of my head. But in segment two, we talked about New York City at the turn of the century. Meet Me in the Bathroom. I talked about Interpol's Untitled Off of Turn on the Bright Lights. Dave went ahead and talked about probably the most iconic New York City band of that era. The Strokes, Is This It? Barely Legal is the track. And Bob talked about Secret Machines, the song First Wave Intact off of the album Now Here Is Nowhere. Right. Just want to say, um, meet me in the bathroom. The title of the book is actually, it gets the title from, um, that's was one of the hit songs off of the second Strokes album, Room on Fire. Yes. Yeah. Meet me in the bathroom, that's what she said. Mm. Anyway, just a reminder, we're on social media. You can find us on Twitter at, at underscore beyond the pond, one word. You can check out this podcast and all the other wonderful podcasts from Osiris Media at OsirisPod.com. If you want to, um, we have a big Spotify master playlist that has well over 500 songs. Every time we finish an episode, we try to take the songs and put them in the Spotify playlist. Of course, we would recommend highly that you purchase things directly on Bandcamp, but you know you can bring Spotify on your runs or what have you. And leave us a review on iTunes. We love reading them. It uh, gives us more visibility in Tim Cook land, which is always a good thing. So publishing structure... Uh, you guys know this well. We release episodes pretty much every other Tuesday, sometimes three times a month. Uh, we have two episodes coming out here in June. Our next episode, we're going to count down our favorite records of the year thus far, followed by our episode 100. And then as we dip into July and August, we're going to do a bunch of episodes here as um, we recognize you guys are 
going to potentially still be, we're all going to potentially still be in quarantine then. There will be no fish tour. So we're going to focus on some really cool uh, musical aspects and kind of offshoots of larger fish sounds. We're going to talk about some really fantastic jams that we were excited to share with you guys, as well as uh, we're going to do a really special deep dive. We're really excited about this into a genre that we're both interested in. Um, pretty heavily. So uh, really good stuff coming up here this summer and into the fall. We'll just keep chugging along uh, no matter how long we have to do this. So first of all, Bob, thanks for hanging out with us. We appreciate it. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. Yeah, man. This was great. Thank you so much. Yeah. Had a good time. Typing up my questions for that 100th episode right now. All right. <laughs> Beautiful. Of course, Bob is uh, being... The second Beyond the Pond guest in a row from the great state of Maine. Yes. Ah. Maine is uh, doesn't have a very large portion of uh, the American population, but it has an inordinate large amount of Beyond the Pond guests. Don't ask me why. <laughs> <laughs> Anywho, if you've gotten to this point, thank you very much for hanging with us. We uh, hope that we could help you out somewhat in the quarantine situation that we find ourselves in at the moment. It's not great. We're uh, all in this together. Love to take a bath. You know how it goes. So come back in two weeks. We will hold hands. We will sing Kumbaya. We will fight fish myopia. And we will go beyond the pond. Beyond the Pond podcast is part of Osiris Media and is co-hosted by David Goldstein and Brian Brinkman and it is edited by Brian Brinkman.